Hey humans, how's it going? Susan Ruth here. Thanks for listening to another episode of Hey Human Podcast. This is episode 174. I recorded it a few months ago here in Los Angeles. I sat down with Maureen Herman. Some of you may recognize Maureen's name from music. Others may recognize it from writing or maybe both. Maureen Herman was the former bass player of Babes in Toyland. She actually was in the band twice, and she'll talk about that in this episode. Maureen is an extraordinary writer. She has written for Rolling Stone. Um, She's an associate editor at Musician Magazine. She, If you follow her on Instagram, which I highly suggest you do, it's at Maureen Herman there on Instagram. Uh, she writes essay-esque uh, Instagram posts that are uh, really good. So definitely check that out. Maureen has uh, led an incredibly interesting life, um, one that has been fraught for sure. Um, she's been sober for, I believe, 16 years now. She just had her sobriety anniversary. And uh, she talks about all of that in this episode uh, and a lot of the intense things that she went through along the way. Uh, she talks about mental illness, uh, all this stuff. It's a really engaging conversation. If you or someone you know uh, needs somebody to talk to in case of sexual assault, uh, 1-800-656-4673. That is the number for RAIN. Uh, internationally, that number is 202-501-4444. Uh, so that's for RAIN. And then if uh, you need help with uh, mental illness or substance abuse issues, for you or someone you love, uh, 1-800-662-4357. That's the United States number. Um, please, I urge you, if, if these are things that are going on in your life, reach out to someone. I know it's hard, um, but there's somebody there to help. And, uh, you know, you're important. And uh, we want you around, and we want you to get better. So definitely... Uh, Write down those phone numbers for, for yourself or for somebody that you think might need them. Uh, usual stuff, social media, Hey Human Podcast on uh, Instagram and Facebook. You can find my personal social media at Susan Ruthism all over the place. The Hey Human Podcast website is the place to find a links page that I curate based on every episode. So books and movies and articles and Things like that you'll find there on that links page. Uh, rate and review Hey Human on iTunes. And uh, Amazon Portal is on that heyhumanpodcast.com website. It is the way for you to support Hey Human if you are so inclined. Go through that Amazon Portal, shop Amazon like you normally would. And that really helps out Hey Human. Um, what else? Susan at heyhumanpodcast.com if you'd like to reach out and say hello. Uh, if you want to check out my stuff personally, go to SusanRuth.com. You can check out my music on iTunes under Susan Ruth. Uh, I think that's about it. Um, let's get into this. And thanks for listening, everybody. Here we go. Maureen Herman, welcome to Hey Human. Thank you for having me. Thanks for having me be a human. Absolutely. I'm very excited. Um, we are here in your lovely home and uh, which thank you for inviting me over. Absolutely. I'm a bit of a gypsy right now, so I'm all over the place, <laughs> you know. Um, yeah, uh, we met uh, by divine intervention, I think. <laughs> we have a common friend in Scott Jampino. Who is lovely. Yes. I love him. He, <laughs> he runs the Triple Door in Seattle, Washington, which I love playing there. Have you played there? I think so, but I'm not sure. Such a beautiful venue. Um, and he's... He's a doll. Yeah. Have you known him a long time? Yeah, he worked at Touch and Go Records when I lived in Chicago. Okay. And he was part of that whole Chicago music scene in the 90s. Okay. So. Well, I want to, with you, let's, uh, you are a bass player for Babes in Toyland, which, I mean, come on, forget about it, right? Well, I think a lot of people did forget about it. So. <laughs> well, that's why we're here. <laughs> I always say it's like being a punk rock has been. Oh. <laughs> I don't know that people who listen to modern day music understand how important punk rock 
really is. I don't think they understand the connection to everything. The especially when you listen to artists who these days, you know, they they have socio-political music like the U2s and the um, Rage Against the Machines and you know Nine Inch, like all these different bands. They go back a step or two. You have the folk. Uh, political songs but you have punk rock singing about all the angst and all the politics and social consciousness i think people think of punk rock as just being screaming about sex or just being angry about stuff and yeah no thematically i think punk rock and um and folk music have a lot in common honestly it's 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 kind of like down to the you know the gravel kind of like what's going on you know and what it's really like as opposed to um you know flowery songs or necessarily about relationships or stuff like that it's more about like everyday life kind of stuff taken from a different view but i agree um that see i don't know if it's my age or not um but you know i just feel like there's punk rock you know was such an important part of my life and my history and like you referenced some of those bands um you know the roots that they grew out of were based in punk rock and my theory that that i'm going to uh propose in the book i believe that the first well not the first punk rock band but the band that kind of like merged punk rock and, and what became like grunge and alternative rock and everything was killdozer and here's why. <laughs> Killdozer was on Touch and Go Records, which is where Scott lived, uh, worked. And it was a Chicago-based record label run by Corey Rusk. And it was like the Jesus Lizard, Urge Overkill, um, uh, Big Black, um, Steve Albini's projects. And um, Steve Albini being a legendary producer... Absolutely. And old friend of mine, okay, who's yeah. married to my best friend. Oh wow! <laughs> and one, and anyway, um, yeah. So, so you know, so Steve and um, all these people, uh, there was such a great music scene when I lived in Chicago. But Killdozer was like, they they were a little, they were like eighties. So, um, Kurt Cobain, literally, the reason he picked Butch Vig to to record Nevermind was because of Killdozer. Literally, because he loved Killdozer so much. And so when Butch Vig kind of, you know, Butch Vig was like a record producer guy like Steve, but in Milwaukee. It was just like, you know, he did indie rock records, whatever. And Nirvana taps them to do their major label, you know, d- debut. And then everything, now all of a sudden, all the major labels are like, what's all this stuff going on in these indie rock scenes? Because we were all connected by, you know, we all had our little scenes in our different cities, but we were connected by fanzines, we were connected by touring bands, and it was kind of a network. And then all of a sudden, with Nirvana, um, it just became a, became a commodity. Mm-hmm. But, the but you know, when Nirvana... Which I think was hard for Kurt Cobain, really. I was just going to say, and I think, you know, when, when Nirvana did their second and last record, it was with Steve Albini. And that was another tap to music that was really... What he was trying... What Kurt was trying to kind of demonstrate is like, look back, you guys, this is where the goods... Like, it was a reference, but it was also because he wanted that. He wanted to work with Steve. He wanted to work with Butch Vig. He loved those bands. They, they made him the musician and the lyricist that he was. And he, he always um, gave that credit. So it's inter- I talk a lot about this with music, the... the- for me at least, music is communion, community. And you speak about the zines and the networks and the fact that all these different bands and all these different city, cities, they'd crash on each other's couches when they came through towns. They, were, they really were a network of support for each other. And I do think that perhaps the machine of music now has done away with that in, in a lot of ways. It's, it's unfortunate, right? Because it, if you sat down and did, say, the family tree of even Nirvana and the band... You I know, can't believe I, you just said that. Why? Yeah. <laughs> just got <laughs> Because I want to put a, a, a tree in the book yeah, of the I bands. Mean, because there is... Because there's a genealogy. There's a hundred... Like, it's me the shivers. <laughs> <laughs> I think so, absolutely. And 
as a, as a writer and a performer myself, it's to me it's really important to, t to touch the roots, to go to the gravestones, to dig down into the mud and see where everybody, where that first moment happened, where the lightning hit the, the yeah. water and the mud and it created the first being of music. I just think that's so important and it gets lost. And, and it's not something that you do purposefully. Like you discover, you literally discover music. And it's, it's like, you know, when you talk about going down, you know, to the roots and, and, and the gravestones and the, the hard foundations, um, it's, you know, my, all right, my, my story of why I got into punk rock is kind of strange, but it's like, it's about, it's about exposure. And when I was, um, in grade school, my best friend, Stephanie Brown, her, her brother was an album, uh, an album designer. And he did the Clash, give him enough rope. He did the Tubes. He did the Stranglers. Some really, you know, right? Oh, wow. Now this was in like the early. This was in the late seventies. Okay, late seven. Like, yeah, because I was a freshman in nineteen eighty. No, okay, so like it was very early nineteen eighty-ish around there, whatever. Um, Anyway, so she would, like, come to gym class with, like, a Patti Smith shirt on and stuff because she was exposed through him to all this music. So, you know, she was my friend. So my first concert was The Stranglers. <laughs> like, you know, which is, like, if, if I'd known what that even meant then, I would have been like, oh, my God. But I was just like, oh, this is this band that, you know, Stephanie's brother did an album cover for because we got to go backstage. We got to meet the band. I got to play the drum set. You know, whenever we went to a show, we were on the guest list because Hugh would you know, her brother would put us on. Were you already playing an instrument at this point? Oh, God, no. no. I was just going, like, you know. With what is this stuff? Yeah, yeah just, but, but my ear was opened to a different kind of dissonance, literally a dissonance and a different kind of thing than I had been exposed to on AM radio as a, you know, kid who grew up in the, you know, white suburb of Chicago, Libertyville. Just, you know, the regular pop AM stuff and, you know, Fluid Mac and Leonard Skinner and all that stuff. And then it was like, but then I had this side thing. And, and then, so when I would hear those kinds of things, like when I moved to L.A. when I was 19, a friend of mine gave me a cassette with Big Black, um, the Big Black album um, Lungs, which is an EP, their first. That's all I had for like the first month like to listen to. So I listened to it constantly. And on the other side was Mission of Burma, um, uh, Mission of Burma album. And I think that really affected me because it was like after that, it's like, you know, I definitely had the, um, the ear for underground alternative, whatever you want to call it, punk rock. Was bass the first instrument you picked up or was it? Drums? Um, it was, uh, my, my brother was a bass player and he played in a garage band in high school and so he taught me how to play Smoke on the Water when I was like 12, but I didn't really have any interest in it. But then when I was um, like tw 22, 20-ish, um, my brother got his hand caught in a pasta machine and it was flattened because he, he was, it's, I, mean, I shouldn't laugh. I'm so sorry, John. Um, so he was working in the basement and the guy was vacuuming upstairs so he couldn't hear him screaming and he couldn't rewind it. And so he had to wait till the guy was in vacuuming and then the, they couldn't get it out. So they had to get the fire department and he had to wait for them to unscrew the fucking thing and get his hand out. It was pretty bad. Holy shit. It's really bad. It's better. He recovered in years to come with therapy and whatnot, but it was fucked up oh my god and so he kind of like reluctantly kind of just like gave me his base and because at the time i had a roommate who who uh had a drum set and i was just like fucking around with music and he's just like well here you can have and he just and he's never seen me to this day play live shut up it's not like he's mad but it just was just like too painful for him i think it may may have been sure you know maybe not i mean we have these ideas of who we are and then one doorway because, you know, I didn't sit there and, like, noodle around. He really knew how to play. You know, I just, like, was self-taught and, you know, whatever. Anyway. So, was your childhood what would you call normal, abnormal, or...? Um, you know, I think it was a super normal setting, but, you know, there were cracks in the sidewalk. It was, um, <clears throat> um, I think, like, you know, it was kind of Twin Peaksy in Libertyville. You know, we had, like, um, 
just like middle class suburbia, but then like the homecoming queen got murdered by another classmate, and then and then the the family who owned the family who owned all the gasoline stations in town were like mysteriously murdered uh, shotgun close range during a lightning storm and they never caught the killer and everybody rumored it was uh, one of the boys which were in high school and um, Kurt Rouse was one of them and my my sister married both murder or married my sister dated both murderers so she dated the guy who murdered the homecoming queen and she dated Kurt Rouse who killed his parents at close range with a shotgun I Wow. So there was that weird... I'm curious, just to sidestep that, what did your sister say dating was like? Oh, they were just like, you know, guys, whatever. Just went on some dates. Just just, some casual murderers. My friend Tom Morello, who, um, you know, he's in, you mentioned earlier, Rage Against the Machine. But I remember when I brought my sister to... We used to have these Yuletide jams where we we Christmas... um, We'd get together and, like, play... When in because we all went to high school together, and when he met my sister, it was like to him it was like meeting a rock star because she had dated Frank Slago and Kurt Rouse. <laughs> he was just like, oh my god! He just thought she was so cool, you know. And this is like he'd been in the, touring the world and everything, and he was just like so in awe of my sister. It was so funny. So all right, you pick up the bass. Uh, how old? <clears throat> uh, twenty-one. Oh, so. You were... When my brother gave me the bass is when I started playing okay, bass. But you, well, yeah, but I didn't know how old you were then. So, oh, you, yeah. so you were deeply entrenched in the scene of the music because of, of the... Yeah, so my ear, my ear was tuned to that. And, and then, you were getting trained in, in your own way. Yeah, and, and so I was attracted to those kind, that kind of music. And then when I moved to Minneapolis in 1985... Hotbed of music, by the way, especially then. Especially, I mean, the, it was just yeah. like, dee, 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 dee. but let's put Maureen here, you know? Mm-hmm. And it was a weird, it, and um, I moved there, because um, I, I moved out here uh, just very briefly, and then I moved back to the Midwest. Anyway, I started dating Shannon Selberg, who was the lead singer for this band called Cows, which were on Amphetamine Reptile, and they were, like, unbelievably great. And um, we're still friends to this day, and... Uh, and so, I, you know, through him, and it was, I'd never dated anybody in a band before, you know, but it was just like, he just happened to be in a band. And I, in fact, when I, when I first started dating him, he wasn't in the band yet. He was just about to play their first show. So it was just, so I kind of grew up with, not grew up, but I saw that band go through, like, I started to learn, like, the process of, like, a new band, you know, and um, tour and play shows and stuff like that. And everybody in Minneapolis was in a fucking band. I mean, like, literally. And and that's actually how I met... Um, I, I met Kat and Lori from Babes in Toyland. I met Kat. Her... She... Our boyfriends were roommates. And so she was on the... We were on, sitting on the front porch of their house. And she had just moved to town. And she was just kind of like this girl who kind of, like, wore, like, vintage dresses that were kind of, like, fucked up. And I'd never seen anybody dressed like that before, you know? And, um... So we, I, me and my friend used to make fun of her and call her the battered housewife look, you know. It is now known, it ha- has other names, and it has been copied by many, including, you know... Courtney Love. Yeah, which I'll talk about in a minute. Um, but anyway, no, um, that always bum- bummed me out, to be honest. Um, that, that... Because when Cat when Cat was, let me go back to the porch. So we were on the porch, and she she had a boombox, and she's like, "Do you want to hear my new band?" And I'm like, "Sure," you know. And she plays me this god awful fucking shit, just like horrible, you know. And I'm like, "Oh, that's great," you know. And uh, because you know, I was just like, "That's so cool that you're in a band," you know. I'm so glad you started a band. That's great, you know. And you know, they started playing shows in the. That's gr- your Midwestern kindness, right? <laughs> yeah, you're just like, oh, well, you know, I wanted to be, I wanted to be encouraging. Yeah, totally. It was sounded horrible. Absolutely. And. <laughs> and and Lori Barbera was the drummer, and she was had been a friend of mine from the scene already. And it was like, oh, so when they I saw their first show, which was at a party, and I thought I thought they were great. I thought and Cat only sang like a couple songs, and I afterwards I went up to her and I'm like, you should sing like more songs because I I thought they should be a three piece, and they eventually were, but um, I saw them slug it out, tour all over the country 
play shows, deal with a lot of bullshit, and finally get to a really, you know, good spot where, you know, Sonic Youth was asking them to open for them on European tours and shit. And that's when Courtney came to Minneapolis. Courtney Lowe. Yes, Courtney Lowe came to Minneapolis for a while. And the reason I pause and I feel emotional right now is because... Kat went through a lot growing up, and she was now finally making a mark on her own with this music and her lyrics and everything. And she had, she was one of a kind. You know, she had a Rickenbacker, she wore, she had this style, her hair with the red barrettes and all that stuff. And um, that was, it wasn't a, a, it wasn't a cliche. It was just how she was. And and so later. Um, Courtney came to Minneapolis, hung out for a while, claimed she, she went to a practice, like just literally went to one of their practices, and that's how she claimed she was in the band. And every time I see it on Wikipedia, I delete it. Um, she was not in the band, as Kat can attest. Um, anyway, she, she, uh, I can go into an, in, in the book, I talk about, you know, me and Courtney hanging out and, you know, it was fun and everything like that. But she left Minneapolis and a few, I don't know, maybe a year or two later, I was flipping through records at a record store. And I see this picture of a platinum blonde girl with bar red barrettes. I'm like, I didn't know Babes had a new record. And I look and it says whole. And I'm like, that's fucking court. What the fuck? I thought, oh my God, court, what are you doing? Her hair was brown when I knew her. She didn't look, she didn't dress like that. And so she had literally gone to Los Angeles lifted Casper Stone even got a Rickenbacker guitar and <sighs> she totally stole her she stole it but because she was in LA she was noticed first she was noticed first and it to this day it really did you call her out I'm curious I mean you probably talk about it in the book and the book we're referencing is your memoir that you're writing right yes. now and we'll get to that too but um just in case we we're like what is this book <laughs> yeah no i don't want to get off on no tangents. no no, no. I, I and think... i don't want you to give too much of the book away either because i want no, people to read it but it's fine i, I but just did you call her out did you because you knew her and did you say what i the... never had an opportunity to really i i always did in interviews with the band whenever anybody would say were you influenced by whole cat's face would just you can only you can imagine she was so, you know, I would just go, uh, yeah, no, that's, you, you, you have got the chronology wrong, do your homework, you another know. Another reason for the family tree. Yeah, another reason. So, um, but it really hurt her literal heart. It, 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 it was like something got stolen from her because she was always seen as like part, now she was just a female band. She was just another female, oh, they're all the same. See, they even dress the same and there's a thing. And before that, she was... A, they were a band just like all the other bands in Minneapolis they just happened to have you know what I mean it wasn't like they're oh they're the girl band it wasn't like that but now they were get we were ghettoized you know and um, so I was a fan and, and, and watched their shows from, from way back and, and how did you come to be a part of Babes in Toilet somebody always has to get die or get mangled for me to like move forward in my music career but anyway Joe Cole got murdered <laughs> and he was Henry Rollins roadie and best friend and he was dating the original bass player to babes and she could not take it and she quit hi <laughs> so it was just really awkward and weird and kind of like but they had just signed to a major and I remember and I had just been fucking around with music, you know, and, and um, you know, whatever. I, I, I had been in a couple bands, but nothing, you know, whatever. Um, and I got this call. I was sitting at my, in my office. I was going to Columbia College in Chicago, and I was working in the English department, and I get a call from Lori saying, Michelle quit. Do you want to join the band? And I'm like, Because I had just, like, I had finally gotten myself in this situation because I really wanted to be a writer, you know? You're an exceptional writer. Oh, well, I'm not just you. saying that. You are an exceptional writer. Having oh. been graced with uh, some of the articles, we'll talk about that stuff too, but holy moly. Thank that's you. That's true talent. 
for real. Not, in, and we're talking about journalistic quality. Just good <laughs> no, thank you. And and I I loved writing, and I wanted to be a writer, and that was my goal. And I had fine, and, and I had you know really struggled with um, financially to be able to go to college. And all I ever wanted was just English degree and just be a writer and just be happy. And it never worked out. Now I was because I was working full time in the English department. One of my benefits was to go to school for free. So I was so I was like taking writing classes at Columbia College Chicago. Had a great job. Had health insurance. Was pretty fucking happy. My boyfriend was in the Jesus Lizard. He was the bass player. I was good. <laughs> and I don't mean like I'm saying. It's just that you know, by then you know ba babes weren't like a big deal yet. You know, it was just kind of like, and I knew what it was like to slug it out around the on the road. I'd seen it, the cows do it. I'd seen Jesus Lizard do it. And I'm like. Oh my God, you know, and I said, um, well, you know, okay, um, and I kind of was unsure, and she's like, well, why don't you come up to Minneapolis and audition, and, uh, you know, and play, let's see how it goes, and I'm like, okay, you know, I was still kind of on the fence about it, you know, and when I got up, because when I got off the phone, I hung up, and I'm like, what the fuck did I just do, what the fuck did I just do, and it just felt like, oh, I was just about to do my thing. You know, what am I doing? Just, just let's just, and then I thought, you know what? It's be fun for a little while. All right, fine. This can wait. This can wait. Let's go see. And then I'm like, fuck, I don't know how to fucking play bass. I mean, I don't know, like. Were you a party girl at all by this point? Or no? Were you pretty straight and narrow? I was, I was definitely drinking. Yes. Um, I didn't, I didn't start drinking alcohol until I was like 22, but, um, um, but I quickly caught up. Um, but, but I, I, what was I just saying about the, uh. That you, that you decided it would be fun to. Oh, to, 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 so I, so I went and, um, auditioned, but I, I was just like, well, I know how to make stuff up, but I don't know how to like play other people's songs. Like, I can play bass, but I'm not like a... I've never played covers. I don't know the names of the notes. I don't know anything. So Dwayne Dennison, who was the guitar player for the Jesus Lizard, who now resides in Nashville, Tennessee, um, he was a guitar player, and he's also, you know, he's got a degree in music, and he's a music teacher. So he fucking sat me down, and he taught me all the babe songs. Just, like, over a weekend, you know? Just sat me down, and I'm like, okay, okay, okay. So I went up to the audition, fucking nailed it, and they're like, holy shit! And I'm like, you don't even know. I don't know how to play anything else, you guys! <laughs> you know, like, like it's not like that, you know? I'm just like, oh. And, you know, I know I was chosen. Make it till you make it, whatever. <laughs> I know, well, that's kind of, that that's one of my mottos. But I knew that I could write songs with them because I felt comfortable with them. And I knew that what was more important to them was that they, we were friends, all of us. And we had been friends for a long time. And they didn't want to just get, like, there were some people vying for the position that, like, you know, wanted to be in Babes in Toyland. And I think they just wanted somebody that, Cat uh, really thought I was funny. Like, we, you know, and Lori, we just all were really good friends, just in the scene. And um, so, so I joined. And boy, things changed fast. <laughs> so that's kind of the backstory of that. And... Then it got real big, real quick. Yeah, we were on a... Within two weeks, we were on tour with Lush, on a national tour, uh, opening for Lush, and then we were in the recording studio about six weeks later. <laughs> How long was the ride? I did it for from 1992 to 1996. Almost five years. Yeah, That's a really long time for a band, by yeah. the way. Yeah. Especially a punk band, I would think. Yeah. Could have been longer, but I... Because they're pretty incestuous, punk bands. They sort of oh, move totally. They move in and out of totally. all their different... Totally. Uh, what are some of the uh, the highlights from Babes? Um, What's something that just pops in your mind, just first thing? Me, Timothy Leary loved our band. Mm -hmm. And and I thought he was just like... He wanted to introduce us to on Lollapalooza. And he, we were on Lollapalooza, and he was like doing one of the side things or whatever. And I had read something he wrote, and I was really impressed with him. And anyway, he came up to me the first day, and he's like, and he, he like played air bass, and he's like making the bass sound. He's like, and he like did one of my bass lines. Like he literally was like seriously a fan. And I guess his son really liked us, so he'd heard us a lot. Mm. 
And I was just like, oh my God, <laughs> this is so weird. Because <laughs> he came up to me like, oh, I love the da 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 da. I'm just like, oh my God, it's fucking Timothy Leary. Holy fuck, holy fuck. And then he was just so sweet. And it was just like, and I remember, you know, with this one time going and into the hotel bar and he was just sitting there by himself and we ended up talking and it was just we you know to meet somebody on that level um and and connect um and at the end of the tour i'll never forget this he came up to me and he said that's the last time i saw him he said thank you for never asking me about lsd or the 60s and i'm like you're welcome <laughs> Because, you know, we would talk and I wasn't doing the usual, like, so what was it like when did it? You know, we were just talking. We were talking about whatever. Yeah, you were being human beings, not fan-fucking each other. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. That was fun. I think that there's a certain level of when, especially when you become as a Timothy Leary is, you, you just, you probably miss just good old-fashioned conversation. Well, that's what it felt like he was thirsty for i think mm -hmm. he had been, i think he felt often that he was being interviewed mm -hmm. just in conversation and didn't get to like really connect with people and and so i was glad you know i, I certainly wasn't gonna i would consider that rude yeah. to do that you know did you keep writing you know, journalistically or, or essay wise and well, along the way during those five years i started doing morning pages way back in 1986 or whenever that book the artist's way came out um and so I always kept a journal, always. And um, from since I, was, since I was 12. And um, um, so I wrote throughout, throughout the, the touring and, and all that, throughout the band years. And then at the end, um, Cream Magazine was still a thing. And they asked me to write an article for, like, they were doing, like, guest, you know, guest writers. And I wrote, I just wrote some thing. And it was like, oh, my God, you know, and then all of a sudden Jan Uhelski, who's like this f famous um, rock writer woman who's, you know, which was rare at the time or ever, um, kind of like taps me a little bit like, you should write, you know, and I'm like, well, yeah, I love writing, you know, and, and, um, and then I wrote something else. And then uh, when I quit the band, you know, which I get to in the book, but I quit the band in 1996 because I had a choice. We, they're, they're, our, our record deal had just, you know, we were, it expired or whatever, it ran its course. So it was time to, like, sign a new one. And it was going to be seven, seven record deal or something. I don't remember what it was. That sounds about right. I mean, that's the traditional, yeah. traditional deal, right? Seven albums. And I'm like... And your soul, I believe. <laughs> but it was like, you know, it had been four and a half years. And remember, I was at Columbia College. I was still kind of, like, wanting to do my thing. And so I just... You know, there were other situations going on, and that's in the book, but um, I quit. I, I wanted to be a writer. I wanted, and I, it was a weird thing to do because I was making a lot of money. It was a weird fucking thing to do, and I still to this day don't know how I did it, but I just quit. And I just was just like, I'm going to be a writer. I'm going to be a fucking writer. I'm going to be a writer. And within weeks, I was back at Columbia College, and I took an English comp class, and my teacher took me aside afterwards, and he said, look don't bother with school and I'm like but I want to be he's like you're good mm. just go and he natural gave, talent he goes you're you're fine he goes let me give you some introductions to the local you know weekly paper and and he did and um <laughs> within 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 literally a year and a half I was associate editor of a national magazine musician magazine in Nashville Tennessee <laughs> Oh my god <laughs> it was just weird it just it was insane and then rolling stone and rolling stone and <clears throat> you know and it helped because i was in the band <laughs> this was the greatest thing i could get interviews with anybody really easily because it was just maureen calling <laughs> like you know i mean i'm the, the only one who got to talk to zach de la rocha after the the infamous um mtv incident he, I was the only person he talked to. Let's talk about that, because I don't think people know what that is. Oh, um, this, uh, Rage Against the Machine was up for a um, MTV Music Award, and um, Limp Bizkit got it instead, and the bass player, Tim Comerford, jumped on the stage and climbed up one of the, like, columns in the set. It was just like, it was insanity. And um, Zach was embarrassed. 
honestly, is what he told me. And he just, because they had worked so hard to have their music mean something, and then to have that reaction to an award, it, he couldn't, he couldn't, it, it seemed like it was like, oh, that's no big deal. It, I understood where he was coming from, especially having toured with them and seeing how important their politics were to them, all of them. You know, but it, it was like kind of a thing, you know, it's a band, it's a rock band, but, you know, some people take things seriously and some don't, you know. Tom was kind of like, well, that was whatever that was, you know, that's Tom. You know, and for Zach, it was just different. And, and I think that's where it all began as far as the, the, the breakup of that band. Mm -hmm. And I have that. It's still, you can still find it on, if you Google Rolling Stones, Zach Dillard Roach, and Maureen Herman, you can find that article. Yeah, I'll put that on the links page along with about 8 billion other things for this episode, <laughs> for sure. Um, Sorry, I go off on tangents. No, 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 oh no. No, I'm excited about it. I, I want all the stories. I mean, you've lived 12 lives and likely every every cat life, and then started over with another set of cat lives too, right? <laughs> Where what was going on with addiction at this point? Um, at the point after I left the van. Um, when did it get to its fever pitch? Um, because you were well. We get. I don't want to again. <clears throat> I don't want to jump around too crazy. But you've been in Babes in Toyland twice, right? Yes. I, so I but I don't I don't know exactly where your sobriety came along in in the journey of okay. all of that. So throughout the 90s um I was an alcoholic, dabbled with cocaine, you know, powder cocaine. And um that's a modern age thing to say, the powdered kind. <laughs> well, it matters it's significant in my story because uh, I ended up um smoking crack. Oh. So okay, I don't want to I didn't used to do that. I understand. And so that was a change. Um <laughs> So, so I started, my, my drinking got bad after I quit the band. Mm. Not to say, as David William Sims from The Jesus Lizard, who was my boyfriend at the time, as he can attest to, I was, I had problems with my drinking, definitely, prior to that, definitely. But now that I was not touring, I noticed, you know, because in touring life, drinking is normal. And now it was like, it was 10.30 at night and I wanted to drink. I noticed. But why? Why did I want to drink? It was 10.30. I wanted to drink. Okay, let's go to a bar. Okay. And it started and it began. And um, it just, you know, and, and and I was trying to find out, figure out who I was and da 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 And, um, um... Shortly after the band, I quit the band. Um, I, I I was married at the time, and um, um, that ended badly, and, and but necessarily, and because you know significantly. Remember when I told you I, I quit the band because I wanted to be a writer? My husband at the time said was really excited when I got a temp job as a secretary at a bank. And I said, oh, my God, this is the worst. He's like, no, maybe you can get hired full time. I go, I want to be a writer. And he goes, well, you're not going to make money at being a writer. And I'm like, who did I marry? I was just like, in that moment, I knew my marriage was over. Oh, fucking ver. Over. Over. <laughs> and so, you know, what a lot of people don't know it, you know, some people think I was just whatever, but that was really significant for me, and it was over. And so um, I ended up starting to see somebody before I was divorced, and it looked like I was having to, whatever, it's fine, Chicago. But I was kind of a pariah for a while in Chicago, and that kind of put me deeper and deeper. But I actually started, I became a crack addict after I went to treatment for alcohol. Okay, let's get into that for a second. <laughs> because, be, because, because I... They should put that on the Betty Ford sign. <laughs> I know, it, it's like, and, and, and it's, and it's, it's not to dis, dis treatment centers. However, I have a very strong feelings about the kinds of treatment that work. But, um, um, I went, I went for alcoholism. It was great. I learned a lot. Um, Music Cares, which is the Grammy. Uh, God bless Music Cares. Yes. They do a lot of good. They do. I've seen. Maybe not for you, but... For no, they do. Yeah. They do. They're great. 
Um, they have their their problems, but that you know every sure. every nonprofit does. I've seen them help a lot of friends get through a lot of tenuous, terrible things. They have some strange rules um, that they and they tend to treat their clients a bit suspiciously, like criminals. And that's unfortunate, but I'm so grateful that they were there to pay for treatment for me for the 28 days that I was, when I was in New York and needed it. Um, And the only reason I kind of like say that is because people have died. I know a friend of mine who, um, whose whose friend died while he was waiting to get approval and from them. And because the process is very slow. Bureaucracy. I I think that's a, that's a flaw with them. But anyway, um, um, so so I so I got sober um, for a little while and um, um, but it was a twenty eight day treatment thing. So I went for twenty eight days and then I was let out. There was no aftercare. There was like a little bit of thing and you should go to meetings and whatever. But it's like, did you go? Yeah, I, yeah, yeah, I did. But it wasn't. I didn't. I didn't understand then that alcoholism has like zero to do with bev- the beverage of alcohol. It it is a symptom of a th- of a brain disorder, and um, in twenty six November twenty sixteen, the U S. Surgeon General reclassified addiction and al- alcoholism as a brain disorder, mental illness. Is that what you mean? It's or? a it's a you know how I like I have depression, which is a mood disorder. Mm. Alcoholism is a brain disorder. Oh, interesting. Okay, it's not a psychiatric. Okay, it's a disorder of the brain. However, you want to categorize it. Got it. They probably would have like done like what you're talking about, like you know. It's, we I know it's, it's it's the genetic component. Without the genetic component, you can be a drinker and not become an alcoholic. With the genetic component wired in, then whatever it is you're dealing with, then can lead to that. that right? It's is it's that about it's or? about the reward system wiring. Ah, okay, got it's it. It's literally about reward system wiring. So that's why it has nothing to do with the beverage. It could be about gambling or food or it's shopping. It's the addiction mechanism. Yeah, I see what you're saying. So okay. so in in a normal person, they would have you know have a drink and feel relief. In somebody with my kind of brain, I had a drink and it was like. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Thank you. And then my brain just said, whatever that was, do it again. Do it again. Do it again as if your life depended on it. And I, I, I often, um, I often when people say, like, well, just don't drink. That's like asking someone to not run from a lion. Because it is, it's part of their brain that's the most primal the reward system. So it's so instinctual. You that is not something you can break in 28 days and it is not something that you can do easily. And the only time the only way that I was able to get sober finally later, many years later, I was in outpatient treatment for a fucking year and it worked. And I went to AA means because I had to still live in my life with all my problems. I wasn't in some little place, you know, separate from everything. Month isn't going to do it. Because when I and when I went there, it was a nonprofit place. There should be one in every city, every little town. It should be the national model. It was called Breaking Free in Aurora, Illinois. Saved my life. The year outpatient one, yeah. But so the first time you went to rehab, you came out and you went. Crack seems like a good idea. Right. I'm sorry. See, I no, got lost. No. So 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 when I re- I relapsed after the 28th day, and I happened to relapse in a bar that somebody from my treatment center was relapsing in too, but she was a crack addict, and so she had some on her, and I'd just been through a breakup, and I was like in a bad situation with my family, and it was just like so when I took that hit forget it I was over so I was, I was like in my 30s <laughs> when I started smoking crack <laughs> I think I was 32 it's a good year for crack so 32 to 36 I was a crack addict wow how did you afford that oh god read the book yeah <laughs> well, I will 100% no no it's, it's I don't mean to say like I, no it's uh, it, it's it's such a weird life and it was so you, I, you do talk about it in the book yes that's coming out you will yeah i mean obviously you know i was not on any psychiatric medication i had major depression i didn't understand what it was i didn't know that i even had it i didn't understand um that i had ptsd i didn't understand um that i needed medication and so 
as my current psychiatrist had mentioned when she did my intake interview, she's like, or when she, once she got to know me, um, she's like, you know, the drugs that you chose are very similar to your current regimen if they were leveled out to be, she's like, the kind of things you chose, you were self-medicating. Mm. She, you know, we were naturally taking and drink, doing whatever it was that was trying to that regulate. was yeah. fixing that little thing, and so so um, it wasn't pharmacological. However, which he was trying, or he or she was trying to say that they would give you drugs that would mimic that same behavior in a well, way. You're, I, I actually want to clarify that there's something you know. I have mood disorders and and a brain disorder, and so when. It took a long time for very patient psychi- psychiatrists to come up with a regimen that I'm finally able to function on, mm. she said, as she sat in her bed like a weirdo. Um, <laughs> and and without them, I would be fucking dead in jail, or I don't even want to think about it. Mm. Um, but it was something that was... Um, a problem very early on and, and, and one of the reasons that the book is important to me is that part of the story because when I was 19 I was at University of Minnesota and answered an ad for um, a depression study because I wanted the money and they they t- tested me like for like three weeks like I did all this stuff and physical and everything and they're like sorry your depression's too severe and then that was it how did you take that information i was like oh, that sucks <laughs> i wanted the money i only got like a hundred dollars you could make like three hundred dollars you know <laughs> and, and so i'm like oh whatever i'm depressed you know yeah. whatever that means what what does that mean i don't know i'm from libertyville and what year was that 1984 so already it was just wasn't the era of no i didn't know depression what, at all that's nobody's it's also said, a big cocaine era uh, you know yeah no i didn't know anybody who had I don't even know that it was a thing. I thought it was like, well, I'm depressed, maybe because I, I don't even know. I did it did not register as a diagnosis, and they did not take me aside and explain that to me. I had a serious <laughs> problem. Was but, that the war on drugs era, the Nancy Reagan? Yes. Yeah. So, so that um, that is important to me. That um, you know, that kind of intervention would have changed my life, but then I wouldn't have a book. That's true. Let's talk about it for a second, because I do want to touch on some other stuff. You mentioned PTSD, if we can dig into that a little bit. The name of the memoir that will be coming out? It's a memoir, motherfucker. Which is such a great title. It's a memoir, motherfucker. I have an alternate title that I'd like to use. We'll see what they say. They like, the, 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 the book company likes that title. It's a great title. I just don't want it to, like, get in the way. Anyway, that's the title. I, I think it will, I think it will bring them in, as they okay. say. Yeah. Uh, and plus... I mean, Jesus, that's going to be one hell of a, one hell of a book. Um, <laughs> oh, thanks. The PTSD. Mm-hmm. From? Um, I have complex PTSD, which is uh, when you first, my first memory is a, is a rape trauma. And so <laughs> my literal first memory is. As a child? Yeah. The first memory I have that I've always had with me ever. Family since member? I first, it was a family member. And, um, and so it started off early. And so I didn't know that I was raped. I didn't even know what rape was. I didn't even know that it was rape until I was in my, um, 50s. I'm 52. I just realized it, it was, no, 2015. Yeah, it was like a few years ago that Jackie Fox and Barry Crimmins explained to me that what happened to me was rape. And, um, and both of them are rape, sexual assault survival advocates. Barry Crimmins is no longer with us, but... Yeah, he was an important person in my life. Anyway, um, so, and, and he also had PTSD, which is one of the reasons we were friends. But, um, so, as my life went on, I added, those traumas were added to, some of them were sexual in nature, some were not, you know, I would, happened to me in Lower Manhattan for 9-11. My house got ruined by a tornado in Nashville, you know, just like shit happened, you know? And so, by the time... I was in my 30s, I, I answered another fucking ad at Columbia University for a study for PTSD because I needed the money. And they said, um, you have complex PTSD and it's too severe for the study. <laughs> but they, 
They There's your other book title, Too Severe for This Study. Too Severe for This Study. <laughs> so, but they were really great. They helped me a lot, and that's how I ended up going into treatment. But, um, but, um, so the PTSD, so, you know, like, when, 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 when I, whenever I start to, like, go to a new therapist or a new psychiatrist, they go, oh, so you have PTSD from the rape, you know, because I'm, my do- I, I was raped in my 30s and then got pregnant from it, and I am raising my daughter from that experience. And so everybody assumes that's what it was. It was, like, that was, like, later. <laughs> like, that was, like, way later, you know? What, so. what... That, that's a huge decision to make. So now, we are in an era where abortion rights, of course, are on the table again. Um, maybe it happens every era. I don't know. But um, it's certainly a hot topic. And especially because several states are passing laws saying that rape victims must continue to carry their babies. Yeah. What? How do you feel about that? As a person who made the decision to keep the child, where are you with that? adamantly pro-choice sickeningly adamantly I will fucking tackle you to the fucking ground and explain it to you while I stand on your chest until you understand that's how adamant I am about it that a woman has to choose whether or not she can or is able to be a parent because motherfucker it is the hardest thing to do just in general if you're poor and on your own raise a kid that's really fucking hard in america period now if you add to that that there's sexual trauma involved and 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 jesus christ you know oh my god all of that um it it it, it's it's unbelievable that i don't know how i did it and and i think the only reason i was and i didn't intend to i i tried to get an abortion multiple times but I kept spending the um, the abortion money on crack. <laughs> so you were crack. so you were on crack, and but and you were raped, and then mm-hmm. got pregnant, uh-huh. and didn't get to get the abortion because I kept spending so, the cash. So does that mean that the decision to not have an abortion was, was sort of made for you in a way? Yes. Or, okay, because there's a timeline when they're like, nope, not a good idea now. I mean, this. I could have still done it, but at, there was a point at which I'm like. Do you think it was subconsciously? No. No. Okay. No. I was so upset when that happened. I The rape, of course. No, no. no. I mean, when I realized oh, okay. that I wasn't going to be able to have an abortion. Ah. Because Tom Morella had wired me enough money to get a late-term abortion. And I was like, so I had the fucking bus ticket and everything. And I was ready to go. Because you had to go to a different state? Or? I had to go to a different state. I had to go so to Georgia. It, because it, was it was a big. It was a big deal. I had to get this done. This late, was, late stage abortions legal in a lot of yes. places. Yes. Yeah. And so I, because and, and I just knew. And so, you know, it's in the book, but it didn't work out. And and my my boyfriend at the time had my van, and he got arrested and so he didn't come I didn't have a way to get to the bus station in Nashville and I was pregnant and it was just like oh my god it was just, and then I just ended up spending the money on crack again and then I just stopped talking to everybody and I went up in my attic and I just laid on the floor for two days staring at the ceiling the cops came Tom Morello called a private detective and the cops to find me because he was worried and I heard them come in but they didn't ever they never bothered to look upstairs where I was and I was just, like, sitting there, like, I can't believe I have to do this. What am I going to fucking... How am I going to have a fucking baby? What the fuck is this? What the fuck? And so I kept I kept using, I, you know, pregnancy doesn't cure addiction at all. And so it was a fucking nightmare, from the whole the whole fucking thing. And I was lucky to get out of it alive. And um, Was your baby born crack addicted? Um, she was born with cocaine in her system. Um, and, and I was charged with uh, reckless endangerment. And I lost custody of her immediately. And um, that's what happens to addicts. They don't go, hey, maybe you need treatment. Or, hey, they go into the fucking foster care system immediately. And I think that's another reason that I'm writing the book is that, um, anyway. How'd you get her back? My mom's a fucking miracle. Again, this is in the book, and that's an intense and scene. And all the details. Yeah. yeah sure. But um, it was just a weird thing. My mom came down, and she fucking convinced the judge to let her take custody. And the lady at the 
the social worker said she had never, ever seen this judge allow that, especially taking him out of state with the, with the addicted mother, ever. Did the did they catch who did it to you? Who raped you? No, it was three guys. No. I was they were drug dealers. I I, did, I wasn't gonna fucking say anything. I was buying drugs from them. <laughs> I'm not gonna fucking tell people, oh guess what? You know? Sure. There's no fucking way I'm gonna say anything. You can't really speak for your daughter, but being her mom and probably having had these conversations, how does she come to terms with the fact that she's the product of rape? She um we, we talked about it. You know, I, I always knew what would come, and I was always honest with her about her origin as age-appropriately as possible. But I didn't, the rape part didn't come up until she was, like, 12, 11, 12. And it was at that time that she stated that if the same thing happened to her, if she got pregnant from a rape, she would have an abortion. And that, to me, says every... Everything about choice and that is exactly why another reason that I'm pro-choice. What I did was so hard and, and, and the resources that are needed, you know, food stamps, uh, Head Start, WIC, all these programs are being cut, 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 cut. That made it just, just barely, made it barely possible for me to raise this infant from zero nothing. I mean, nothing. Um, those are all being cut now and and um, increasingly over the years. So asking some, so so when somebody says, oh, you have a, a baby and a, you, you were raped, but you have a baby, you have to have it. Okay, where's the funding? Is there, because there's no, no child support, by the way, ever. And where's the funding for raising this child? Because what are they supposed to do? They're also granting parental rights to the rapists, which that Don't one get makes, me no, fucking, I know, I that can't makes me even. livid. So, so, you know, the fact that my daughter is pro-choice and, and, and when she, the night that she found out said, I would have had an abortion, even though what she was talking about, but, you know, it's just like, if I did, you wouldn't be here. But she does, she gets that, she understands, but she is here. And it, she, she can see beyond the moment of herself. Yeah. And yeah. she's, you know, and she's here and she doesn't want to fucking have a baby if she gets raped. That's her choice, and I will defend that to the my the fucking death. Where did where along her upbringing did you say okay maybe cracks not a great idea anymore? Oh God, I stopped when the, the when she was born. I mean, I had to. I when she, when she was born, it was like well now it's time. That's when I found breaking free. Thank oh, God. Okay. And mm -hmm. so I started going to. That's how I got sober. No, no, I did not get sober for my daughter. That's a really important distinction but that's when i got sober was because of breaking free right after i had anna because you mm -hmm. cannot get sober for people I, I agree with you yeah absolutely having many friends who have gone on that journey until it's you yourself yeah yeah incredible um i'd like to just touch on again i know all of this is in the book and i do hope that everybody listening reads this book because it's gonna be i, I cannot stress how good a writer you are and I imagine that this is going to be one of those books that you start reading and basically you ignore all your phone calls and texts and you know you, you know, like you just sit in a place and read it start to finish I know that that's what it's going to be for people when they read your book you you've said when we met you you know you and I talked on the phone and planned this and you sent me some articles boing boing right and a couple others, and I was just like, I mean, because you know, people send you stuff, and you read journalism, and you're like, oh, it's pretty good, whatever. And I love words; I'm a big fan of words. And uh, when you send me those, I immediately sent them off to other people. I was like, holy, this is some good writing. You're there. You're actually there. That's a very what tricky thing to do, I think, to be able to be a writer that immediately takes whoever's reading and puts them in that Raymond Carver looking in the window type of situation. Okay. Which I feel like you do. It's just your master of it, I think. Wow. Um, so, one, speaking of Boing Boing, you're in Babes in Toyland again. What, what year was this? Uh, 20, 2014. We and how did you end up getting back in there? Well, um, I, I reconnected with Kat um over uh, mental health stuff and sobriety, and she was, um, and, and so we really bonded. And she came to the lake house in in Wisconsin, where my family had a house, and 
I hadn't seen her. Oh my god, I hadn't seen her since we played a show in Hawaii in 1996. Or talked. It was right back. Right back. It was so fun. It was so fun to reconnect. And we weren't... And then she's the one who brought up, like, playing again. I, oh my god, seriously, I just signed a book deal. And I'm like, yeah, let's do that. Because, of course, now she's, now she's super excited and she wants to do it. This is the worst time for me possible. Worst. And, I mean... My fucking agent was just like, what? You know, I, I guess you could use this. Or, well, it's due in a year. You know, I'm like, okay. <laughs> you know, so that's what happened with that. <laughs> so anyway, so we did reunite. And I had these really rich friends that used to work at Google that um, paid for us to fucking reunite, which is a fucking miracle. It's fucking miraculous people. Chris, Chris Caracas and Eric Fredrickson. They, they, they kept bugging me to play for years. They're like, if you ever want to play, let us know. If you ever want to play, let us know. I'm like, it's not going to happen. And then I'm like, oh, shit. And so I texted Chris. And I'm like, remember when you said you'd help me if I ever wanted to do the reunion? And he's like, yeah. And I'm like, it's happening. He's like, I'm in. <laughs> and he fucking started a little company and everything. They were so amazing, which is why when it ended the way it did, it was, it was upsetting not so much for me but because of the people that had done such generous and wonderful things to make it happen you know do you want to talk about the article the article that was the end of oh the jackie fox article um I, uh jackie fox by the way for those of you that don't know was uh, in the runaways remember we were talking about rape a minute ago so um when someone discloses a rape, it's fucking hard. And this was way before the Me Too movement. This was 2015. And I read an article, The Bassist for the Runaways, which was an all-female band from the 70s, was disclosing, finally, that she had been raped in front of a people at a party when she was 16. And um, there were witnesses, there were people there. And it was just like, oh my, and it was this really, like, amazing article by this journalist, Jason Cherkis, who's fantastic Huffington Post um, investigative reporter. And it was so well-researched and so well done. And I was like, oh my God. And then I kind of was following the story a little bit. And Joan Jett comes out with a statement. <sighs> Basically dismissing Jackie's disclosure. Like, and I knew how hard it had been for Jackie to fucking come public, you know? And now Joan Jett was starting to cast doubt on her story, and I watched all the comments that Jackie had started to get changed to, well, you weren't really I saw it happen. I fucking saw it happen just because Joan Jett, who was a feminist icon, dared to cast dispersion upon Jackie. I was so enraged. And, and so angry that I wrote a fucking 13-page, single-spaced article and cut it down to, like, seven that Neil Gaiman later tweeted, by the way. <laughs> the article is exceptional, and I will put it on the links page. So where are you going next? What's, what's the plan? You've got the book. I got the book. I'm kicking ass with, um, with it now, finally. Um, I, I finally found people who work with me that understand that the book is written already it just needed to be assembled um so there's no more writing to do maybe a few little transitions and intros here and there but it's i have a fucking great team called team motherfucker and we are kicking ass and doing almost a chapter a day and we're turning it in, in on july 1st and then i'm going to move to marseilles illinois in a in a three-bedroom house and that is owned by my high school friend tom morello who I was texting with one day a few months ago, and because I was thinking of moving, because the rent in LA is very bad, and, and I'm on a fixed income, and um, I was just kind of like thinking about moving like back to the Midwest, and I was looking at houses in Libertyville where we grew up, just to see what the rent was like, and I thought I saw Tom's house on for, for rent, and I'm like, so I texted him, I'm like, hey, is your house for rent? And, and uh, he goes, no. And then, like, ten minutes later, he texts me and says, but I have a house in Marseilles I'll rent you for a song. 
And I'm like, how much is this song? <laughs> like a, a Raging's Machine song or a Babe song? <laughs> you know, like, what do you mean? <laughs> and so anyway, so we had to keep it between ourselves and not to, because it was all very like, how are we going to do this? So for very great price, I have a beautiful home that I'm going to be moving into um, August 1st. Um, and I'm so excited. People, Tom's, Tom Morello said, you are probably the only person in the universe ever and ever will be that would be so excited about moving from Los Angeles to Marseilles, Illinois. <laughs> it's a tiny town of 5,000. Mm. I'm so excited. Anna's so excited. I, I, I cannot take living in poverty anymore. And, um, and, I, and I don't want to. And um, there's no reason for it. And um, The book one more time for those in the wings. It's, it's a memoir motherfucker on Flatiron Books. It should be out July of 2020. And people can find your articles all over the place under your byline. Yes. Yeah, and again, I'll, I'll make sure there's lots of links and things. Uh, wow. You are a... Well, you're a survivor, for sure. Um, I'm really honored to know you. I'm sad you're moving away, because I feel like... We've only just begun, as Karen Carpenter would say. <laughs> well, I am definitely one of those people that uh, long distances do not change uh, friendships, whether they grow or anything like that. Maureen, thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you for doing this. It was fun to, to talk about stuff, and um, I hope it wasn't too tangential. No, it was wonderful. <laughs> and everyone, please uh, read Maureen's book. It's going to be an incredible memoir. You, you will not be disappointed at all by it, I'm sure. Um, thank you. You're welcome. Thanks, Thank everybody. Thanks for listening. Rate and review Hey Human on iTunes. Thanks. Bye.